Please join me as we start the book of Philippians. This is Philippians chapter 1, looking at verses 1 through 2. This is Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, to the saints in Jesus Christ, to the overseers and the deacons. Here now the written word of God as we read Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Love of the grass will wither and the flowers will fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Pray with me. Father, this is your word. It is true in all that it says and teaches because you, Father, are the supreme author. We know that it is infallible and inerrant. And Father, it is truth in a world that is filled with lies. And Father, as we gather now for the preaching of your word, open our ears to hear and our hearts to understand the things of God. God, fill me with your spirit that I might preach in a manner pleasing in your sight. Again, if there is one who has never trusted Christ today, draw that one savingly to yourself, Father, we pray. And Lord, may we as believers grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. These things we all ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm very excited to start preaching the book of Philippians with you. And what we're going to do is walk through this book verse by verse. But before we do that, let me give you some background to how the book of Philippians came to be. We read the book of Acts and we look at Paul and Barnabas going on that first missionary journey. They went to the region of Galatia and they took a man named John Mark with them. Well, about halfway through that trip, John Mark decided he had had enough and he actually left Paul and Barnabas. And at the end of that trip, Paul and Barnabas came back to Jerusalem and Acts 15 says they had the Jerusalem council. And after they had that council, Paul and Barnabas started talking. Hey, let's go on another mission trip. Sounds great. Well, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them on this second trip. And as Paul thought about that, he said, you know, it's not a good idea. You know, the young man had, had left us on the first trip. And actually there was a, such a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, the two decided to split ways. Barnabas picked up John Mark, and they went to Cyprus, the word of God says. So Paul got another guy. He got Silas, and the two of them set off to Lystra. So they started on that second missionary journey to Lystra. And when they got to Lystra, they met a young man named Timothy, and they learned that his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois had trained him in the scriptures even from his infancy. And Timothy decided to go with Paul and Silas to be part of that gospel ministry, so the three of them, they took off and they headed straight towards Philippi. When they got to Philippi, the word of God teaches us that Timothy watched Paul and Silas suffer for the gospel ministry. But during their brief visit there, God did mighty works in the church there at Philippi. And, and indeed, a church was started there because of that trip on the second missionary journey. And it was years after this, Years after Paul and Timothy's missionary journey to Philippi, that Paul, after his third journey, he ended up in Jerusalem. And we know from the book of Acts, he was arrested in Jerusalem 
and he was sent off to Caesarea Maritima. And in Caesarea, he had to stand before Felix Festus and King Agrippa. And when he stood before the king, what did he do? He appealed to Caesar. So they put him on a ship and they sent him to Rome. And in that Roman prison, under Roman house arrest, the word of God teaches us that Paul wrote four books of the Bible. He wrote Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and you guessed it, Philippians. These are known as the four prison epistles that Paul wrote to the churches that he had helped start. And as we look at this book of Philippians, this prison epistle that he wrote under Roman house arrest, we see that there are many, many different themes in the book. One of the themes is joy in the midst of trial. We're going to look at that in detail next week. Another theme is justification by grace through faith, living out the Christian life, a pastor's affection for his congregation as Paul led the flock at Philippi, and the example of Christ's humility and service towards others. But today, we're going to zoom in. We're going to focus on these first two verses And by looking at these first two verses, I want you to see that at least two of those themes are brought out, even in the first two verses. And from this text, I want you to see three points this morning. And here's our outline. Are you ready? God's servants, God's grace, and God's peace. God's servants, God's grace, and God's peace. Look with me back at verse 1. Look at that first line. Paul and Timothy, what does it say? Servants of Christ Jesus. When we read the Gospel of John, the Lord Jesus teaches us on the night he was betrayed, having loved his disciples and committed to loving them to the very end, the Bible teaches us that he he took off his garments and he girded himself with a towel. And he got down on his hands and his knees and he, and he filled a basin with water. And he began to wash his disciples' feet. You know, he didn't wash their heads that were far away, far above the ground. He didn't wash their bodies that were covered by their clothing. He washed their feet. Think about that. Their dirty stinky, smelly, nasty feet, these feet that had collected so much dust and dirt from wearing sandals. It was a very humbling thing to do. You see, up to this point, the disciples had watched Jesus display his power. They saw him display his divinity. They saw it in John chapter 2 where he turned water into wine. They saw him take two fish and five loaves and feed 5,000 people. They had just watched him raise a dead man from the grave when Lazarus was resurrected. And now this powerful Jesus, he's down on his knees in a towel on the ground washing their feet. Peter didn't know what to do with that, did he? You remember that? He didn't know what to do with that. But Peter soon came to learn that fundamental teaching of Jesus. For Jesus had said, whoever desires to be great among you, 
let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Why? Because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And beloved, as Paul opens this letter, he describes Timothy and himself using the same language. You see it, he said they're servants of Christ Jesus. You know, Paul could have talked about his knowledge of Judaism in the Old Testament, which he had, but he didn't. He could have talked about all the accomplishments that he had on those missionary journeys, but he didn't. Rather, he called himself a, a servant. The literal translation here is a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul had realized that he's not his own. He was bought with a price. And that price was the life of the Son of God. He knew he belonged to Jesus. You know, our, in our society, the word slave has, ter has some terrible connotations. Many think of it as a bondage of oppression, of brutality, of mean-spiritedness. But in this context, it's still a bondage. But it's a bondage of love. It's a bondage of gratitude. You see, Paul loved his master because he knew his master loved him. And it was a joy for him to serve. And as the Philippians, think about that original reading audience. As the Philippians read this opening statement about service, they thought back about their past. And they said, yeah, that title servant, that, that really does apply to Paul. They would say, I remember when he got to Philippi, he served us by faithfully preaching God's word. And, and Lydia, the seller of purple, she was converted. I remember when he came to that demon-possessed girl in the streets of Philippi, and he had compassion on her, and he, and he served her, and through the power of Christ, she was made whole. And, and you remember that story about Paul? They, they beat him, and they put him in shackles in that prison in Philippi. But when God opened that door, and the chains fell off, and he had an opportunity to run, he didn't. And he looked over at that Philippian jailer who was about to kill himself and said, Stop, brother. And he said, what must I do to be saved? And what did Paul do? He shared the gospel with him. Believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the old boy believed and he got saved. And they went to his house. And there were baptisms at his house. And the church was started there. Why? Because Paul was a servant of Christ Jesus, his Lord. So we see, beloved, that this verse teaches us as Christians what the heart attitude of the Christian should be is that of service, one to another. The problem with that is our sin nature, though, isn't it? Our flesh, the world teaches us, don't look out for others, look out for yourself. Can I share a story with you? I think I told you I went to King College. It's now King University, but it's in Bristol, Tennessee. And Bristol's a twin city. It means half, half of it's in Tennessee, half of it's in Virginia. It's right on the line. So King was in Bristol, Tennessee, but our rival was across the state line. It's called Virginia Intermont, VI. I don't know if you've heard of it. 
And it was basketball season, so VI comes to King College for a basketball game. And we have a small gym, but it's packed with people. And the basketball game begins. And I look over and I notice one of the cheerleaders from VI. She was so loud and so obnoxious. Everyone noticed her. And I'm telling you, it didn't matter who you were. You could be a fan. You could be a coach. You could be a player. You could be an official. You were going to hear from her. She made herself known the entire game. And I couldn't figure out why she was doing that because she was really making a scene. She wasn't helping her team at all. They, they lost the king, by the way, that night. <laughs> but I couldn't figure out why she was the way she was. And the game ended and we were all going out, being a small gym. There were only you know, about two exits. So everyone's going through two doors. And it just so happened that I was right next to her as we were going out the door. And she was still going, man. She was still talking to everybody, even though they lost. But I looked down at her arm on her shoulder, and there was a tattoo on her arm. And it was words. You know what it said? I'll tell you. <laughs> it's all about me. It's all about me. And you know what? Made sense. Made sense why she's acting like she's acting, right? Because, man, it's all about her. It's not about the players. It's not about the fans. It's not about the coaches. It's not about the game. It's all about her. All eyes need to be on her. It's all about me. You know, when we read a text like we're in today, we see and we see the way the Lord Jesus lived, we see that both Jesus and Paul, they flip that philosophy on its head, don't they? Jesus and Paul teach us that greatness is found in service, not in self-centeredness. Beloved, we are called by the power of the Holy Spirit to continually die to our sin nature and to live in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that will mean our service is focused on the interest of other people people. Well, beloved, what does that look like? When it hits your life, what does that look like? I'll say first, it looks like this, that we all should look for opportunities to serve others, just as the good Samaritan looked for opportunities to serve that, that man whose life had been trampled by sin. Not his sin, but the sin of other people. You remember that story where he got down and got, got his hands dirty, and put the man on his horse and bound his wounds, paid for even his stay? He had mercy on the man. He served that man. I'm sure he had other things to do that day, but he looked for the opportunity to serve. Husbands, what does that mean for us? That means that we should serve Christ by continually putting our wives' needs before our wants. We are called to love our wives as Christ loved those disciples, as he loved them to the very end. We are called to love our wives as Christ loved the church and put her needs before our wants. Wives, what does it mean for you? It means you should look to serve Christ by encouraging and respecting your husband. They need that in their lives. Let me ask this, children, teenagers who are here today, what does this mean for you? 
Right now, I want you to think about that person who's in your school, that girl or that boy who always is picked on or who's made fun of or doesn't have any friends. How can you love that person? How can you serve that person and look to his or her needs? Because when we think about service, now this is a big one. You, you ready? When we think about service, let's never forget about that foot washing because that night when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, that also included Judas. Judas, who would hours later go and betray Christ, Jesus washed his feet. Why? Because he loved him. He served him to the end. We should say with Paul, I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. Jesus teaches us a servant is not greater than his master. If the master lived by serving, beloved, so should his followers. Secondly, today, Paul teaches us about God's grace. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, grace to you. Grace to you. What is grace? We often define it as receiving something that you don't deserve. We often sing the song Amazing Grace, but I ask you the question, what makes grace so amazing? Well, the answer to that question will only come if we understand what we really deserve. Because if grace is receiving something you don't deserve, we first have to answer the question, what do we deserve? And we look at the Bible to find the answers. Romans chapter 3, Paul teaches us there's none righteous, no, not even one. He says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in chapter 6, Paul teaches us that the wages of sin is death. That's an interesting illustration, isn't it? The wages of sin. Think about that for a second. Do you remember maybe when you got your first job or your job now? Are wages a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> They're a great thing. Maybe when, when in your first job you, you anticipated that, that first payday, right? When you're going to get your, your wages. And in your mind, wages are a good thing. It's going to help you. It's going to help your family. There's a positive connotation. But Paul takes that illustration and flips it on its head. He says that because of sin in our life, sin also earns wages. But the wages are not something that are good for you. It's, it's bad. The wages of sin is death. And not just physical death, but spiritual death, an eternal separation from God. And when we examine this teaching under Scripture, the Bible teaches us what we deserve. And it says, because of our sins, we deserve an eternal separation from God. We deserve the pains of hell forever. And this is extremely bad news. A man hears this news, and what does he say? A typical man, I've got to fix this, right? I have got to find a way to earn this back. I have got to find a way to pay for the grace of God. Let me tell you a story. I heard this story um, 
from Dr. D. James Kennedy, who's now with the Lord. I'm going to use someone as an example. Where's Daryl? Daryl in here? There he is. Daryl, let's say I drive up to your house one day, and I drive up in a brand new Porsche. Brand new Porsche. And I walk up to your door, and I knock on your door, and I say, Daryl, man, I want you to know I have bought you this new Porsche. Look at it. It's brand new. Just drove it off the lot. And you're thinking, Daryl thinks to himself, man, this is great. Adam's a great guy. What a bastard he is. Buys me a Porsche. But Daryl says, not going to happen. <laughs> but but Daryl says to me, Adam, thank you. Thank you for buying me this, this Porsche. But, but Adam, I just can't let you give me this Porsche, man. I've got to give you something for it. So, so Daryl puts his hands in his pocket, and, and, and all he has in his pocket are, are, are five pennies. And says, Adam, I know this is not much, but it's all I got right now. Adam, please take these pennies for the Porsche. And he hands me the pennies. Beloved, once that happens, once he gives me these pennies, I would say at least two things happen. Number one, that Porsche is not a gift anymore, is it? Because he gave me something for it. And number two, it's sort of an insult to me because a penny is certainly not worth the value of a Porsche, but this is what happens when you offer pennies for a Porsche. And I want to tell you that it's the same way with God's grace. You see, God comes to us and says, grace is receiving something you don't deserve. God says to us, I want to give you this gift of eternal life, forgiveness of sins, the promise of heaven. It's a free gift. And we immediately, we put our hands in our pocket and we say, God, even though that's great, even though that's awesome, God, God I want to give you something for that. I've got some wonderful pennies for you, God. And we say, we, God, I got, I got this penny of my church attendance. God, don't you know that I'm faithful every Sunday? And, and God, I got this penny of my tithes and offerings. God, look at the records I, I've, I've given. God, I've got this, this penny of, of being a good friend and a good neighbor. I have mercy on people who have needs. And, and God, here's my penny of comparison. God, haven't you read the papers? My name is not in the papers. Compared to other people, I am a good guy. And over and over and over, we give him pennies and that final penny of, of heritage. God, don't you know that my father's a deacon and my granddaddy's, he's a pastor. God, I, I got this good, this good heritage. But in reply to that, God says to us, my child, don't you see that you can't earn grace? Because once you give me these pennies, salvation, it's not a gift anymore. And don't you know that these pennies, they don't equal the, the measure of salvation that I'm offering to you? Actually, if you examined your pennies, you're going to find out that they're actually filthy rags. Don't you remember what I told Isaiah the prophet even his righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And by the way, the wages of these pennies is actually death. 
because even your best effort is tainted with your own sinfulness. Beloved, grace is something that we can't earn, that we can't deserve. And I want you to know, beloved, that this is the answer to the question. What makes grace so amazing? God says that grace is so amazing because the Lord Jesus Christ decided to come down from heaven to earth. He decided to unite his divinity with our humanity. God's grace is so amazing because Jesus did for us something that we could never do for ourselves. He was perfect. Though he was tempted like we are, he did it without sin. God's grace is so amazing because the perfect Jesus went to the cross and he spread out his arms and his legs and he died for your sin and for mine. His grace is so amazing that he was buried with our sins, but he rose without them, removing them as far as the east is from the west. His grace is so amazing that he ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God. He sent his Holy Spirit to this world to call people like you and me to apply what Jesus has done to their lives, that you and I might have the forgiveness of sins, beloved. And once we realize how amazing the grace of God is, it teaches us to take these pennies, these pennies that we hold on to, these pennies that we cling to, and to cast them aside. And to view them as rubbish. For as Paul teaches us later in the book of Philippians, that his righteous deeds are like rubbish to the grace of God. And we say to the Lord, God, there's nothing in my hand I bring. It's simply to thy cross I cling. And we have a full understanding of grace. A few years ago, there was a musical group called 10th Avenue North. You familiar with them? They came out with a song, By Your Side. Do you remember that song? What does the opening say? Why are you striving these days? Why are you what? Trying to earn grace. Grace is receiving something that you don't deserve. My old Baptist pastor at Tennessee Avenue Baptist Church used to say this, we're saved by grace plus minus nothing. And it's this grace, beloved, that Paul greets the Philippian church. For Paul is a servant of God's amazing grace. The third and finally, the last point. We've seen God's servants. We've seen God's grace. Paul also speaks of God's peace. Look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. This verse teaches us that just as grace comes from God, peace also comes from God. From God, You know, if, if we do a study of the life of Christ and we find when he talks about peace, he talks about peace in some very interesting situations. We, we know about peace at his birth, don't we? The angel said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace 
among men on whom his favor rests. We remember right before his crucifixion, the Lord Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. After his resurrection, he told his disciples, peace be with you. But my favorite story comes from Mark chapter 4. It's the story that I call Jesus in the boat. I tell the story to Jack all the time. You want to hear the story of Jesus in the boat? You know that story? You remember the disciples were on the boat and Jesus got on the boat with them. And what did Jesus do? He went to sleep on the boat. Well, what happened that day? Well, the wind started blowing. And the waves started crashing. The disciples started panicking. And they didn't know what to do. And finally, after they realized they were out of control, they, they woke Jesus from his nap and he, and he woke up and he came out on that boat. And what did he say? Peace, be still. And all those waves, they stopped crashing. And all that wind, it stopped blowing. And those disciples who were panicking, they stopped panicking. And the Bible said everything was calm. Beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ understands that there are battles that are still raging in this world between you and God, maybe between you and some other people, maybe you and yourself and the anxiety in your own heart. And the gospel says to you that only through Christ that you can have peace in all three of those situations. That Christ first shed his blood so this hostility between you and God can be brought to an end. That instead of them being the wages of sin being death, that the gift of God can be what? Eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That you can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. That you can also have peace with other people. Because just as Jesus has forgiven us, he has taught us then to forgive others as he has forgiven us, that we might have peace. Ephesians talks about this wall of hostility that went up between Jew and Gentile, and it, and it says it came crashing down through the blood of Christ, and that those two people groups were brought into one because of Jesus. And then thirdly, for you, even in your own heart, the book of Philippians is going to address this later. We'll sneak ahead and look at it now. But Philippians 4, 6, and 7 say what? Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Let the peace of God, the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Beloved, that's offered to you in the gospel because Christ is the prince of peace. Beloved, as we close today, we see once again, this text demands that we ask questions of ourselves. The first question is this. Is that heart of service that was in Jesus, that was in Paul and Timothy, do you find it in your heart today? All too often we find ourselves looking at our shoulder, don't we? And we see this awful tattoo. 
that says it's all about me. This text reminds us that Jesus teaches us, Paul teaches us this greatness is not found in self-centeredness, but actually in service towards others. Let's seek to serve others in the Lord. Secondly today, are you trying to earn grace? Is there a set of pennies in your hand that you're holding on to, that you're clinging to for your salvation? Are you trying to earn grace? If so, cast them off. Throw them down at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling and understand grace. And then thirdly, does the peace of Christ rule and reign in your heart between you and God, between you and other people, between you and your own anxiety. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives you, offers you that peace that will guard your heart. And I will always say, if you're here today, and maybe none of this has made sense to you, maybe it's because you don't know Jesus. You've never trusted him as Savior. If that's you, I encourage you, as the word of God teaches us, repent of your sin, turn and embrace Jesus Christ by grace through faith. And for those of you who are here who know Christ, hide these words in your heart. As we learned last week, let this text teach, rebuke, correct, and train you in righteousness that we all might follow harder after Christ for his glory. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And oftentimes... Lord, as you said in John 15, you are the gardener and you will prune your vines and your branches. Lord, prune us today where we need to be pruned. Lord, help us to serve as you have taught us. Help us to understand grace as you have shown us. Help us, Lord, that we might have the peace of Christ in our hearts and in our minds. And as we prepare prepare for communion even now. May we spiritually feed upon thee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.